0: remember seeing the first puck drop those emotions when a player scores the cheers from the fans and the feeling when your favorite player shoots and scores your hockey heroes laced up their skates taped up their sticks and hit the ice Remember the passion they played with. The passion you felt with every game. Win or lose. Now, you can rekindle those memories with hockey players of the past. Get insights on how they felt on and off the ice. Hear interviews from coaches, referees, and thoughts from their fans. This is the Old Time Hockey UK podcast with your host, Ken
1: Abbott. Hi guys, a very warm welcome to the Old Time Hockey UK podcast. Whether you're a first-timer or a long-timer, welcome. I really appreciate you being here. I'm your host, Ken Abbott, and if you're like me, and love listening to hockey memories, stories, and anecdotes from the past, then you're in exactly the right place. In this episode, my guest is former Winnipeg Jets draft pick Chris Norton. Canadian Chris's sixth-season UK adventure began in 1992 with the Air Raiders. When that team folded a couple of months later, Chris moved to the Northeast, where he filled in for injured Billingham Bombers import Andre Melo. Soon after, he was offered a slot with the Durham Wasps. The Wasps had been league champions for the previous two seasons, but the 1992-93 team, remarkably, were now struggling at the foot of the Premier League. Regardless, Chris liked what he saw and took up the offer. He spent three seasons in Durham before signing for the former Whitley Warriors, now renamed the Newcastle Warriors, for the 1995-96 season. It was all change again the following season, as Chris joined Sir John Hall's relocated Durham Wasps, now rebranded as the Newcastle Cobras, and coached by former Wasps legend Rick Brabant. There's a lot to talk about in this episode, which by the way, is quite a bit longer than previous episodes. So I suggest you buckle up and let's go and talk to Chris. Hi Chris, thanks for coming on the Old Time Hockey UK podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Ken, thanks for having me.
1: No, the pleasure's all mine. So you're originally from Ontario in Canada. What are your earliest memories of playing hockey?
2: Oh gosh, so yeah, I was born in London, Ontario and moved to the Toronto area when i was 2 or 3 and you know it's interesting my my entire family history is is from the uk except for my dad he was the first born in canada so i've got scottish welsh and, and english uh really family tree yeah yeah so my mother uh who moved to canada from uh, manchester area when she was 18 had never seen ice hockey or skated my father actually uh, had never skated in his life and was a rugby player. Right. So when I was growing up, I started uh, playing soccer, or what I like to call real football. And so I wasn't playing any hockey at all. And I was playing for the local town team. And one of the other kids on the team who I got along well with his father coached the local uh, rep hockey team. And he, he and my mother and father got along and he said, Hey, does he play? Uh, does he play hockey? And she does, no, doesn't know how to skate. So they went out and bought uh, my sister started figure skating when she was about 8 and uh, she's a year ahead of me and i was 7 and i wanted to try it as well so again my parents not knowing anything about skating took me over to the local rink with my sister yeah. um, and bought me uh, a pair of used uh, figure skates unfortunately they didn't know that boys wore black skates and girls <laughs> wore white yeah. so my so my first memories of skating were i with white figure skates of course wow. i took a Took a ticket on the chin by all the people at the rink, all the young guys. So <laughs> my dad had the solution to get a can of black spray paint right. and spray paint my uh, fig- white figure skates black. Of course, I went out there the next time thinking I was a proper Charlie. And of course, <laughs> all of the, all of the spray paint leaked off. So oh, wow. as I skated around, there's a trail of black behind me. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of my introduction to, uh, to skating. And, and, you know, honestly, uh, Ken Hockey came, it came pretty easy. It was one of those things where I got on the ice and it felt right. Um, yeah. and so I didn't really start playing until I was, oh gosh, nine years old.
1: Right, because that was one of my next questions, sort of how old were you then? But yeah. So yeah, you were a, a late starter, but obviously had to be a, a quick developer.
2: Yeah, 100% was a late starter, but as I said, it was one of those things where you kind of get the feel of it and figure it out, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I played hockey in the winter and, uh, and football in the summer, and loved both of them, and, and was equally excited when Hockey season was about to start, and as as with uh, as with football season, but yeah, I was a couple years behind guys. But you know, I think in this day and age, kids kids start too early, and they play twelve months a year where they really shouldn't be. I think they, you know you need to focus on different things, and and certainly my parents were extremely supportive of me playing a sport that I wanted to play they knew nothing about ice hockey which is great my right? dad only asked me make sure you work your tail off when you're out there otherwise I'm not going to pay for it but you know so it was it was great great in that regard I really, really loved playing uh you know hockey as a young guy
1: so growing up in Ontario in London Ontario so did you have a favorite NHL team
2: oh yeah come on Ken I'm from you know, I grew up in Toronto so I got the I, I...
1: you got to be a Maple Leafs fan then
2: I got, I've got the tattoo on the shoulder to prove it. you, know? Have you uh, Oh, geez, you know, I mean, I'm a long suffering Maple Leaf fan, as we like to
1: say. You and me both, I tell you. I've been a Maple Leaf fan for many years.
2: Well, cheers, mate. I, well, we can, we can commiserate later. But um, um, yeah, I yeah, know. You know, 1967, I was two years old, and I like to say that I, uh, I was at the Stanley Cup parade because there certainly hasn't been one since. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a diehard Leaf fan. I, you know, living in Tampa now, um, the Lightning obviously are a fantastic team. When in the cup last year. Sure. But, uh, you know, I, I have the uh, NHL center ice package because I got to watch my griefs, as I affectionately call them, <laughs> play, yeah. play every night.
1: <laughs> I managed to get over to see them in 2004. I made in the very first one. In actual fact, uh, they played Ottawa and uh, nice. we lost four one or four two on the night. But just being there in the Air Canada Centre was absolutely fantastic.
2: So that was so that was seventeen years ago. So that means you you're probably just about right now paying off the cost of the ticket to get <laughs> into that game, right?
1: Well, funny you should mention that because I actually bought the ticket. I could only buy one ticket. I went over with my wife and my two girls. They were very young at the time. And I bought the ticket here in the UK, and I think it cost me... Around about a hundred pounds. Good, that's good. I bought it online, and before I actually bought it, I got permission off my wife. She very kindly said, "Well, it's an opportunity of a lifetime. Go for yeah. it." And um, you know, I should be forever grateful to her because that was uh, that was a fantastic experience without the shadow of a yeah. doubt. Just just being yeah. there, you know, it's brilliant. You,
2: you know, I remember I remember as a young guy. Gosh, I want to say it was probably right around when I first started playing. So let's say I was eight or nine, and a friend of my dad's took me to the old Maple Leaf Gardens for the first time. Oh, yeah. To see the Leafs play. And I remember we were up in the – we weren't in the greys. The greys were the nosebleeds right at the top of Maple right. Leaf Gardens. The next level down were greens. And so we were in – I'm pretty sure it was greens or blues, but the next level down. And I remember we got into Maple Leaf Gardens, and we rode up the escalator, and there's all this – you know, there's trophies, and there's photos of the guys. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, a 9-year-old, 8-year-old kid with my hockey cards in my back pocket, so excited. And I remember – Walking out, you know, down the mezzanine into the, you know, where the, you know, where the snacks are and the food and whatnot, and walking through the, the tunnel there to go out to the rink and standing there, you know, basically the the clock is hanging at about, about my eye level and looking down at the ice and seeing them warming up. And I swear I, I still get, still get uh, the hairs in the back of my neck uh, stand up because it was, just such a memorable experience. So, so to your point, you know, just something that those are those are moments that you take with you forever.
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, we um, we actually did a tour of the a Canada Centre on the morning of the of the game, and it was fantastic. We went all around the arena, apart from the dressing rooms, because it was game day, and we sure, couldn't go yeah. in there. But I've always been a Nottingham Panthers fan, and Sheffield Steelers are the the enemy. And on the tour. There was another couple from the UK, and of course, they were Steelers fans. But, uh, you know, just one of those things where Steelers fans get everywhere, unfortunately. Of
2: course, they were there, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, that's great.
1: Okay, let's move on. And you obviously progressed pretty well in, in hockey, because in 1985, you were drafted by the Winnipeg Jets in round 11, 228th overall. I mean, were you actually expecting to be drafted or, or was it a surprise?
2: You know, I had a, I had a good freshman year at, at Cornell. You know, I, I'd set the, uh, for Cornell hockey, the rookie uh, freshman points for, uh, for a defenseman. You know, Ken, I'll be honest with you. I got extremely lucky because another freshman on, in my class, first year player, was a guy by the name of Joe Newendick who has won three Stanley Cups. And
1: And played for the Leafs when I actually saw the game. He was on the team.
2: Yeah, Dyker played for the Leafs, and he won three Cups, and he won the Conn Smythe and Olympic gold, and yada, 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 yada. So he was a fantastic freshman at corner. He's my best friend. He's my wedding party. And uh, the great thing about having someone like that is that there's scouts at every game to watch him. Of course, (laughs) yeah. And we knew that, uh, the guys who were draft eligible. So it was one of those things, like in – they can slapshot of those movies, you know, there's, there's <laughs> the fans with contracts in their pockets, right? Yeah. Or, or whether that was slapshot or what have you. But we knew that there were a lot of folks there. I mean, and I guess it was one of those situations where I, I, I played a good game and, uh, and John Ferguson, who was the general manager of Winnipeg at the time, rest in peace, was at the game. And so, yeah, I got drafted that summer. Now, I had no idea that the draft was even going that day. I was up north at a buddy's cottage and I called home actually to tell my mom and dad that I was going to stay an extra few days, and uh, and my mom picked up the phone. and She's, you got drafted, you got drafted. So yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. It's um, it's one of those things again that they can't take it away from you whether you ever make it or not. But you know, sure. you've, you've you've been selected, and that that was very meaningful for me. I was was quite proud of that.
1: So what happens after the draft? After you've been chosen by the Winnipeg Jets, what's the sort of? Timeline, if you like, after that, right. do they contact you and get you down to a training camp or what happens?
2: Well, immediately after I was told that I was drafted, the timeline was um, we're going to a bar and we're going to have some beers. <laughs> but then, <that>, Ken, <laughs> to celebrate. Yeah, yeah. No, the timeline is a little bit different. Depends, you know, where you're playing when you're drafted, Ken, in, in, yeah. in North America, whether you're playing junior hockey or you're playing college hockey. Right. Um, if you're playing college hockey like me down in the States, they're very, very strict about uh, any, partic- any involvement with a professional team, oh. um, you know, them paying for you to do things or how long, you know, you can talk to them, things like that. So you have to make a decision, you know, what you think is best for your career, whether you continue at the university or you sign if you're offered when you sign a contract. So, for example, yeah. my, my buddy Newendike, he played three years at Cornell and then signed and then you have to leave. Right. Uh, you, know, you can continue to stay and go to school, but you can't play hockey. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was a late round pick and they stay in touch with you and, and talk with you. But, you know, they basically said spend your four years at Cornell, develop there. It's it's a top, top notch Division One hockey program in the U.S. Right, um, and I was quite happy to do that because I love my experience there. So you know they've got you in in their back pocket, and essentially what happens is after your your eligibility of university, they either offer you a contract or they don't. And if they don't offer you a contract, then you have the ability to sign with another team. But until that time,
1: yeah, you're a free agent. You're a
2: free agent, right? So they've got your rights. And and again, when I when my senior uh, year ended, I was. Uh, offered an NHL contract right away, which, again, was a, it was a two-way contract, but I was extremely thrilled for that opportunity. It was a four-year deal, and I thought, so I thought, okay, I know what I'm doing for the next four years of my life. Sure. And then, uh, yeah, so I signed and got ready that summer for training camp with the Jets, and uh, three weeks before camp, I was skating in, uh, in Toronto and a buddy of mine was out there and fell on my leg and broke it. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, so that was my introduction to professional hockey. I, I remember vividly the call to John Ferguson, who was – I don't know if, you've, if you know much about him, but he was probably the original heavyweight champ in the NHL for the Montreal Canadiens.
1: All right. No, I don't know what you know about him.
2: Oh, yeah. Great story. He was, you know, this is back in the '60s and. When there wasn't, you know, hired guns, he was a true tough guy that could also play. Right. And so I had to call Fergie and uh, give him the news that uh, I broke my leg. And, you know, there was a lot of words that I can't repeat on this show. <laughs> um, but I basically, I was in a cast for, you know, what, eight weeks. And then I, I did fly up to Winnipeg midway through that and started doing some rehabbing there. But it was a difficult start to my professional career. I, you know, didn't go to training camp, obviously, because of that. And went true. right to the American Hockey League and played in Moncton. But again, you know, I was playing pro hockey
1: and that was my dream. Oh absolutely absolutely I read somewhere didn't you not play in uh, a Jets exhibition game against Edmonton
2: yeah I played it, I played in Apaches I, I, I'd like to say I probably hold the record for most preseason games oh, right. <laughs> without actually <laughs> getting into a game uh, regular season I didn't get called up for a couple of playoffs as well but yeah I played a bunch of games in uh, in the preseason and again when you talk about preseason there's generally at that time there were eight games that they yeah. play and the first the first three it's kind of a harem scareum you throw anybody out there but the last, Let's say games six, seven, and eight—they're they're starting to get down to their team—and I was sure. very very pleased to be able to play in a bunch of the those later games in the in the uh, preseason because that was against basically the, what were NHL teams, so that was a real thrill for me. So yeah, I played 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 a bunch of preseason games. Edmonton being one of them,
1: right? Yeah, you played a lot of games in the AHL and the IHL. Yeah, and after four seasons playing pro hockey, you'd signed for the Air Raiders in Scotland. I mean, what's the story yeah. there? How did that happen? <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's it's strange, eh? Um so yeah, I, my four year contract uh finished. I, I got traded after my third year from Winnipeg to Chicago.
1: All right, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, Winnipeg to Chicago in the summer and uh went to went to training camp in Chicago, I had a good camp. Again The age-old story that I've kind of been under, I separated my shoulder midway through camp. Oh, gosh, And so missed the rest of camp. It started the season in in Indianapolis, which was their farm team. And then eight or nine games into the season, they got traded to uh, L.A. Right. The Kings. Uh, And then, yeah, uh, L.A.'s farm team. So I met the team. I met L.A. in uh, in Detroit, flew out there and met the team there and traveled with them for a couple weeks and then went down to Phoenix uh, to play for the Roadrunners, which was – in the old IHL, which was uh, LA's farm team, which is a fantastic place to play. I mean, I went from Moncton, New Brunswick, where, you know, there's snow 11 and a half months a <laughs> year to uh, to Phoenix. So that was brilliant. Uh, so my, my season ended, and funnily enough, a guy, uh, buddy of mine, Brent Sapersia, who I know that you've uh, you've heard David Sims talking about him the other day.
1: That's right, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Sack was staying in the same complex as me in Phoenix, and he goes, hey, man, I, rumor has it you've got a, your, your family's English, you're British or whatever, You got can you get a passport? i got a... Got a contact over in the UK, an agent guy who's who's talking about you. I'll connect you guys. Yeah, it's fun. I went over there. He's t- talking about his experience. So that's kind of how it how it how it happened. David sense gave me a call and said because uh, I was literally we were my wife and I were getting married that summer. This was in yeah. '92. We were getting married that summer, and uh, my wife's a German American, so she's got a she's got a German passport. Yeah. Oh um, man, we thought you know we were talking about what we were going to do next step. You know, I was going to retire from hockey at twenty seven and really and get in get in yeah get into the real world, use my degree. And my wife at the time had her undergrad and graduate degree, so we were going to start working. And anyway, David Sims called and he says, "There's a team in um, in what they were called the Air Paisley Bruins because they was actually playing out a Paisley. That's right, they the were, yeah, yeah." And and I said, "Oh yeah, so what's the story with this?" He goes, "We've got these two other uh, imports signed a guy named Kevin Lavalley and Lenny Hackborn." And I knew Hack because I just played against him that year, and uh, he was in San Diego. And he was a hell of a player. I think he finished second or third in the league in scoring. And
1: So I heard. I thought I heard he was a great player.
2: Oh, yeah, Hack was awesome. And then Kevin Lavallee, who had played eight or nine years in the NHL and then had a long career in Germany and Austria, was also going. So I was like, well, Hack, you know, these, these are two big, big, big players. This has got to be kind of cool. So anyway, um, I said, sure, send the contract over. And, you know, there was kind of a – a pause and he says well you know things are done differently over here regarding contracts and I'm like well <laughs> you know you you want me to get on a plane and come over there with no contract so he you know he kind of put something together with Colin Wilson who was running the team great guy beauty beauty of a guy Colin Wilson yeah. nothing but good stuff to say about him so I I flew over and so my my wife and I got married that summer and then uh, about a month after that, I flew over by myself into Glasgow, flew into Glasgow and then met, uh, met the guys there. They picked me up and, and yeah, so I started playing out of, uh, out of Paisley. And, and a funny story, by the way, Ken, yeah. my grandmother was born and raised in Paisley. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it's, it's ironic that, you know, I, my first experience going over there was to play where, where she was, uh, she was born and raised. So it was. It was great. So, and that didn't last too long. That's, you know, I remember looking at my stats. I don't even think that's listed, that team. It went bankrupt pretty quick.
1: Well, that's what I was going to come on to actually, because the team was, well, they were sort of like perennially waiting to move into this new 3000 seater centrum ice arena. Yeah. And yeah. I think when you got there, it was about 75% completed. But because of that, the, obviously the team couldn't play there. They had to play in Paisley and that had about a 850 seat capacity the autumn cup was played and then basically they ran out of money i mean on that were you aware that after you got there were you yeah. aware that there were financial problems
2: yeah yeah for sure <laughs> we we became very aware again i was it was my first foray into playing hockey in europe but yeah. but lenny and uh and and chief both knew the knew the system knew the game and they're like you know, after the first week. And those guys were on a huge money at the time for, uh, for, for the UK.
1: So I heard, yeah.
2: And I guess, I, I think the guy's name was David Gardner Brown. I think that was the guy who owned the team.
1: David Gardner Brown, he was the man that was hoping to actually buy the team. Yeah. And he was promising this and promising that financially-wise. Oh, yeah, and yeah. it never materialised. And unfortunately, they uh, 4th of November 1992, basically they had to cease playing because they couldn't pay anybody.
2: There you go. So that's good research. Yeah, he couldn't, he, it was, that guy was a schmuck. I hate, I'm sorry to say that, but the, you know, that, that, we were lied to and we were, we were, you know, running around. I mean, my wife, Christina flew in after about, I'd been there three weeks and played some games and I remember picking her up at the airport and we had a nice little flat and, and uh, and she came in on a Friday and we were playing the next night. And, yeah. uh, so picked her up. She comes to the place, likes it. She says, Oh, this is great. How are things going? Everything cool. And I just kind of, tight-lipped again we've been married for a month and uh i remember that morning the next morning uh, there's a knock on the door and she she got up and answered the door and came back and said we just got served notice that we're getting turfed out of this place because rent hasn't been paid
1: oh wow
2: yeah so i'm looking at her going hey welcome to scotland sweetheart <laughs> you know, this is, yeah it was it was an eye-opener she's looking at me she's going what the heck have you got us into here and i said oh babe you know this is yeah it's not good so we kind of hung around for for a little bit, played a few more games, but then uh, Hack and Chief just said, "We're out of here. We got to find jobs." You know, they had, their, yeah. they had their families with them. You know, yeah. they had their, they, they, Kevin Mavali has two boys in school. You know, they were eight nine years old, so they
1: right, yeah,
2: yeah. So they scampered out of there, and uh, and then I kind of guessed it on in Billingham for a bit because because uh, Andre Malo hurt his knee on GB duty, so they could bring in another import. So I, I kind of played there. And
1: did you actually join Billingham? Before the air raiders went bust, or did it all happen, and uh, and then you joined?
2: Yeah, it was it, it was kind of right at the same time. Can right. things were going south quickly. You know, I had a one-way ticket, air ticket. I didn't have any money to fly home. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right. we paid a couple of times, and with the Paisley guys, Colin Wilson again. God bless him, was mortgaging his house to pay us. And we we're like, come on, stop this. Wow. We, we, we we we'll we'll find jobs. You know, we need to we need to move on. So that's when I got a call uh, from the Billingham gang, and and
1: as I, as I mentioned, Andre was hurt, so he was out for five or six games, wasn't he, with a with a bad right. back back. Correct. You temporarily filled in for him.
2: That's right. Yeah, temporarily filled in for him. You know, so I, I drove down. I just, gosh, I remember driving down from Paisley to Billingham and staying uh, staying with Richard Laplante and his wife.
1: All right. Yeah. Uh huh.
2: You know, another great guy. Another just just you know superb human being. Um, stayed with Richard and and uh, Patrice Fay was on that team. You know, these two guys were wizards on the ice and stayed there. And then uh, I was kind of hanging out just until Andre was ready, which was fine. And that, and that's when, you know, I, the, the Durham being so close and they were making some changes and, you know, ended up driving down to Durham and checking out the place and seeing what that was all about and ended up kind of staying in the Northeast.
1: Yeah. What did you think of the Billingham rink?
2: <laughs> well, you know,
1: I mean, a little bit different from uh, Canada.
2: It's, it's, it's a little bit different from <laughs> anywhere in the world. I think, uh, Ken, it was, listen, I, I have very, very fond memories. You know, obviously, going from from eighteen thousand, or even you know, some minor league ranks of twelve thousand or ten thousand, what yeah. have you, going from those facilities into a, into a Billingham or a Durham, for that matter, it can be a bit of an eye opener. But you know, it's it's one of the I think it's one of the unique things that makes the experience of playing outside of North America um, fantastic. I mean, if yeah. if everything if every person or everybody was the same, it would be a boring old world. Well, the same with sport. You know if everything that you do is the same it's boring right so once you you know you I'm not saying you swallow your pride but once you say hey this I'm playing hockey for a living this is great this is good folks the fans love it this is good yeah. I'm not going to do this forever so let's embrace the opportunity and, uh, and do that so yeah Billingham they, they're not beautiful rinks Ken you know that <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna lie <laughs> but uh, I tell you what I, I've been in very few rinks in my career even with 18 or 19 thousand people that could uh, create the atmosphere and the noise at the old Durham ice rink. I'll tell you
1: that. Oh, absolutely. Again, I was going to come on to that because with Durham, when you sign for Durham, I mean, Tim Cranston left and you took his place. Obviously, he was a forward, you're a D. And the Durham was, position-wise, were in trouble. they have been the league champions for the previous two seasons. And all of a sudden, this season, okay, one or two players had left. One or two good players had left. Mm-hmm. But the nucleus of the squad, I think, was still there. Yet they ended up bottom of the league in the end. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You were there. Any ideas mm-hmm. what had gone wrong with them? Oh yeah, no, it's easy. It, it's actually, it's
2: really, really, really easy, Ken, to to discuss or or to point your finger at what happened. Number one, yeah, Cranny, I replaced Cranny. Great guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's it's a small hockey's a small world, right? And we all know each other. And, sure. And there's there's no animosity whatsoever. It's a business, right? So yeah. In fact, the first night I got to to Durham. We went into Newcastle to a Black Crows concert. It was me and Rick Graybent and Blazer, Mike Blaisdell and Cranny. Yeah. And he's like, good luck, man. Wait till you get, wait till you, wait till you get into this Durham circus. This this is going to be eye opening for you. <laughs> but, um, but listen, here's the situation. Cause I, you know, talked about it before. If you think about those Grand Slam teams in Durham before I got there and the way that the league was structured is that you had three import players and then you had your cast of, of locals right that's right and that durham team you know when you had a a, a band and you had a blaisdell and you know whoever else Michael Connor, um was yeah. you know at that point i guess he'd become british so was there but you also had the cooper brothers and
1: that's exactly right those
2: guys were, were absolutely fantastic british players and they quite frankly and in, in, in some teams could have been imports right so you combine the top level imports that durham had with guys like the Cooper brothers Stephen and Ian and then you throw in Damian Smith who's a heck of a hockey player you yeah. throw in up-and-comers like Michael Tasker Ivor Bennett was there with a good goaltending and with Fozzie and whatnot so they were strong now you lose guys like the Cooper brothers that they go
1: that's a big hole that
2: really hurts because they're not replaced there's no one to replace them Blazer gets hurt his back goes south on him so you know, I played, I think, one game with Blazer, one or two games with Blazer, and then he went home for Christmas. His back was that bad. He couldn't skate, he went home for Christmas. And then, you know, the Smiths called him at home and said, don't come back, which, right. which I thought was rotten.
1: Yeah, I know it was gas. I didn't know the circumstances yeah. behind it.
2: Yeah, he was at home and he got the dear John phone call. Wow.
1: Yeah, Merry Christmas, Blazer.
2: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, for everything that guy done for the, for the team, yeah. I, I thought that was, that was pretty poor because, as you know, he became quite a, quite a good coach, which, again, Durham never had.
1: Oh, being a Nottingham Panthers fan, he was our coach for numerous years, and uh, what a great job he did!
2: Sure. So you know, it's it's that it's that combination of, you know, you lose the Cooper brothers, you, you lose Blazer, you know, I come in, and it's kind of like a skeleton crew, and it and it was it was sad, it was hard because the uh, the fans had been experiencing so much success. And then things kind of fell apart quickly for for various reasons, Um, you know, including loss of players and and Blazer and whatnot, And, and it just never never really came together. It was a it was a tough goal, I'll say that.
1: Well, for the listener to put it in perspective, Durham finished the season bottom of the league, then finished second in the relegation playoff group, and were relegated from the Premier League. I mean, what are your memories of that first season in Durham and and all the relegation playoffs? What are your memories?
2: Yeah. Listen, that that first that first year, like I remember my first game. It was a Vincent Hedges Cup game at home against Whitley.
1: Oh, that's right, it was, wasn't it? And they were the local rivals, the the bitter oh, rivals.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Any any Northeast fans listening to this? First of all, hey, how's it going? Second of all, you know the passion between yeah. the Whitley Warriors and, and the Durham Wasps. So that was, and I had, I had no idea. So it was an afternoon game. I. I get to the rink and I'm, you know, I'm told this is going to be a, and it was in Durham, this is going to be a, a big, big game. And the place was packed, you know, you know, Durham, the fans are hanging off the rafters and they're, they're right into it. And,
1: oh yeah, absolutely. Back to the rafters.
2: And I, and I remember it was, it was, it was, it was a great experience. It was very exciting. You know, again, imports in those days played a lot of hockey. Didn't oh yeah. off the ice too much. So uh, kind of had to keep your, you know, pace yourself and whatnot. And I don't, I honestly don't think we won that game. I think it was the second leg.
1: You actually lost it 5-3 and also lost 18-8 on aggregate. Yeah. And, you know, usually that never happened against, or never happened against anybody, but Wittley always used to be, or seemed to be, always on the losing side. But this time round, it was like, wow.
2: Yeah, it was wow. It was, you know, I I know that, again, I'm new there. You know, you want to make an impression, and I remember that first game. Enjoyed it. A lot and, and, and you know, the fans were, were very warm to my uh, to my arrival and, and appreciative and you know I like think I was a hard working player and continued to, to, to work that way. Sure. I remember going to Whitley for the first game, my first game at Whitley, and going into that rink and thinking well this is you know this is the evil stepson of of the Durham ice rink <laughs> <laughs> and Going out on the ice, and again, that, that was in the day where they didn't have any. There's certainly no glass around the around the boards, right?
1: It was just netting, wasn't it?
2: Well, it, it, when I first got there, there was only netting at the end. There was All no right. netting on the sides. Yeah.
1: Really? Wow.
2: And so I remember, I think it was my first or second shift out there, and you know, coming out of my own end and getting near the boards and passing the puck up to whomever, and kind of admiring my pass and getting hit by uh, my buddy Johnny right. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so Johnny Johnny hits me into the boards and you know, fairly tall, so it kinda of, the boards come up to my hip my hip and I get hit and lean over and there's a woman, an old lady sitting right there with her Whitley colours on and I kinda of go over, and I'm like, Oh, like that, and she kicked me in the head. Oh, really? Like, <laughs> oh ouch. Is, yeah. What the heck is going on here? I mean, I'm getting it from from Buddy Johnny Iredale and <laughs> Welcome to Whitley <laughs> Yeah, Welcome, welcome to Whitley is right. Getting it from Johnny Iredale. and then this he <laughs> boots me in the head. I, I look at him. And I said, "Man, is that your mother?" <laughs> Double whammy, eh? Yeah, for sure. Double team. So, yeah, it was... It, listen, that, that first year was tough. We got into the relegation, and, and I remember the, the Tom Smith and Paul saying, there's no way we're going to be relegated, guys, so don't worry. We're we're, ne- we're never going down.
1: Well, that's right, because there was a, a league expansion which allowed the Wasp to retain their Premier Division place. And, yeah. you know, to be honest, most fans thought that a lot of strings had been pulled and favours called in to keep Durham in the Premier. And for what you've just said, I think that's exactly right.
2: 100%. It was it was uh yeah I don't know who pulled well it's not tough there, there were phone calls made I mean you know Tom Smith was
1: Durham was a powerhouse for many sure. years and and to be honest Tom Smith did I think did pull the strings yeah. Quite a bit, and uh, as I say, I, th- I think most people listening to this will probably be nodding their heads saying, "Yep, yeah, that's absolutely right."
2: Oh yeah, yeah, there was no fear in the dressing room that we were going to be, but, uh, but but again, we're, the players were proud, right? We didn't want to, we no, did lose. We didn't, we didn't want to have uh, backroom political antics keeping us up. We'd rather yeah. just do it ourselves. And uh, but uh, yeah, I, I remember it was it was disheartening the, the end of that season uh, very much. Sure. But I was yeah. happy to stay. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my experience and. Loved the, the city of Durham, and actually, I started teaching while I was there as well at New College Durham. I, I worked up there, uh, as did my oh, wife. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so it was. Yeah, we loved it. We were we were happy. It's just disappointing the way after that, again the success that that franchise has had all those years to kind of be then relegated. Like, come on, how does that happen?
1: It was unbelievable. That that season was just unbelievable memories insights
0: and anecdotes of hockey heroes the old time hockey uk podcast
1: anyway you return for a second season and this time as team captain was it an easy decision to make to
2: return to the wasps yeah. uh, no no it wasn't it was uh again we enjoyed what we were doing my my wife was uh, was running uh a catering program at New College, Durham, and I was doing a, a leisure and tourism program as, as a teacher. Oh yeah, and we enjoyed that; it was good, and we we traveled around the UK and and get my wife from Germany, so we went over there and saw some relatives. So it wasn't it was it was an easy decision, and we thought let's do it for one more year and, and see what happens. And uh, and and yes, and I was made captain, which was got a huge honor. You know, that, that's a franchise that's uh, had a lot of good players and it, fans are
1: extremely passionate. And Absolutely. it was an honour to be captain. Sure, yeah. Okay, so this time the Wasps had a better season, finishing sixth in the league and made the playoffs. But the team also won, uh, or should I say the team also won back, the Castle Eden Cup, beating yeah. the old rivals, the Whitley Warriors, 17-2 in the final. Yeah. And I'll just remind you, You scored a hat-trick. Do you remember that game?
2: I do. I do. I remember the Castleton Cup. It was a fantastic uh, tournament, local tournament. Yeah, that's right. That I know that the fans really looked forward to and, and as did the players. And it was unfortunate, that game I remember against Whitley. There was, I think, Scotty Morrison got hurt, and one of their other imports got hurt. So they were were a skeleton crew. I remember looking over at Mike Rowe just saying, you know, we're we're trying not to score this much, buddy, but, you know, it's happening. Sure. Uh, Because I could see the grief in his eyes. Poor guy was out there uh, on his own. But, yeah, I remember that game well. It was a piece of uh, hardware, which I know that the fans in Durham loved, and uh, it was a good win.
1: Sure, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so in the summer of 1994, he decided to drop down a division when you signed for the T bombers again, Billingham bombers in another name. So, what's the story there?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think it's very nice of you to say that I made the decision to drop down. <laughs> 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 this, the Smiths decided not to have me back. Uh, right, is, is That's the nice way to of them. say it. They, they were, yeah. Well, yeah, it happens again. Ken. it's, yeah, it's a business it's and. Uh, and they had decided that they were going to go in a different direction. I think that was the year that, that Doc Dirtle came and, and Rocky Saganuck as coach. And,
1: and that's right. Rocky is the coach.
2: Yeah. And so they brought in, uh, they brought in different guys and we were living in, in, in Durham, liked it and teaching. And I thought I'd like to stay in the Northeast because we were getting established there as my plan had always been while playing hockey at, in, in the UK, I'd like to be able to start my transition from being a hockey player to the real world, right? Rather than stopping in cold Turkey. And then one day you're like, Oh, geez, uh, I don't play hockey anymore. What am I going to do? Sure, so yeah, one of the things that we, I was interested in was education and teaching. And uh, so I, I got some teaching qualifications when I was there. And so I wanted to stay in the Northeast and yeah. uh, talked to the folks out in Teesside. They called because they would heard that uh, I was available and went out there and met them. And, Todd Bidner was going and, you know, Bidsy's a buddy of mine. And we thought, ah, is, you know, where's the money? You guys got the money. I remember talking to Tony <laughs> Hand up in Edinburgh. He's saying, when, I guess it was Merrifield, and he's saying, hey, we're interested in talking to you about this. And I, hindsight maybe should have thought about going up there, but stayed. And, and you know, back to the same old problems. Maybe it's I'm a bad luck charm, but uh, there was money problems again. And That's uh, right.
1: After eight games, the yeah. uh, financial problems forced you to quit, I think, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it went, it went belly
2: up, and so it was back to that, oh, boy, what's going on? Uh, what are we going to do next? And that, that was a, actually a, a moment in time where we kind of, my wife and I looked at each other, and so said, maybe it's time just to move on and stop this. But um, we decided to, you know, hang in there and, and play and uh, go back to, uh, to Durham.
1: Yeah, how did that work out? As far as my research concluded, the Smiths had sold the club. Rocky had been sacked, yeah. and they were readjusting, yeah. and obviously they brought you back.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it was fortuitous in terms of timing when the yeah. bombers went belly up. And and then there's, there's a, again, the folks in the Northeast, we could talk about this for two hours, the, the situation <laughs> with, with the Smiths losing the, the rink, yeah. essentially is what happened. There was a lot of money that was owed in different areas, and there was a gentleman by the name of Rex Brown who... That's right, uh, yeah was a a local businessman who had been going to the games and really, really enjoyed the games. And I got a call from him and he said, can you come to my house? And I didn't know who this guy was. And so I thought, Oh, I'll just go over there. He says, I got some ideas about the the wasps and this and that. And he, Jesus, I was there for about four or five hours and he just laid out, this is, this is what's happening. These guys are in financial trouble. Uh, They're going to have to sell. There's again, huge backroom battle between the Smiths and the league and this and that. And, Anyway, Rex ended up buying it and took a shine to me, and I'd spent a lot of time with him. He was quite an exceptional gentleman in terms of his business life and really interesting dude, full stop, I'll just say that. And when he bought the team, Rocky moved on, and Doc, I played with him for one game, and then he decided to follow Rocky down to Blackburn, I think it was.
1: And, yeah, that's right.
2: And we took over the team. And I basically, myself and uh, a couple other people, kind of ran that team, and if my memory serves me correctly.
1: Yeah, because was it Rich Little who was the, Player coach.
2: Yeah, yeah. Richard was player coach. He wanted to do that. I didn't really want to coach, to be honest with you. I yep. was doing stuff off the ice, as I mentioned, with teaching. So Richard was coaching and, uh, and we took that over. And it was, again, you could write books about this stuff. Uh, it was a really <laughs> interesting year with what was going on and the, again, the inside fighting because you know the Smith still lived and tom and and his wife still lived in the back of the rink. and wow, you know Damien was sour about what was going on and yep. it was it was unhealthy can I'll be honest with the atmosphere it was unhealthy and there was there was a lot of backing and forthing and and it, it was it was a difficult situation, it really was
1: right, yep. I'm not surprised. I didn't know half of what you've just mentioned, but, uh, yeah, again, I'm not surprised. But, uh, okay, I'm going to move on. Mm -hmm. And last week, I decided to reach out to a few of your former teammates. Here's what came back. You ready for this? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Ken. I remember Chris more from playing against him rather than with him as he had two short spells in Billingham. One of those spells was when I was out injured with my back. He played a similar style to me, very confident and calm on the puck with a great shot. I always had to be weary of him on the ice and make sure your head was up or he'd make you pay with a good hit. For the little time I played with him, he was a great guy on and off the ice. Like me, he stuck around the northeast for a good while. Please give him my regards, Andre Malo. <laughs> and by the way, he still lives in the Northeast, doesn't he?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I actually listened to, listen to his podcast. Yeah, Andre's a, a class act. I mean, everyone yeah. knows that he's, there's not not much more you can say about that. He's a, he's a good man and is a very, very good hockey player. Uh, yeah, I, he's he's one of those guys you'd have on your team any day of the week. It's it's kind of them to say those things. I enjoyed uh enjoyed getting to know him and, and that brief time playing with him. It uh he was, he was a good good dude. Good
1: dude. Yeah, as I say when I interviewed him, he came across as as a very nice guy without a shadow yeah. of doubt and uh, um, and of course he played for the Panthers uh, one season but but then blotted his copybook by eventually going <laughs> to the enemy the Sheffield Steelers, yeah. but uh, we won't go into that. Okay, so I had another reply. Hi Ken, Chris is a really solid person. I am lucky to call him a good friend. He and his family stopped by my restaurant to catch up every time they're in Toronto. Chris and I have played against each other since we were kids, in junior, in college, and in pro. (laughs) We've also been teammates twice. We've played together in Phoenix and in Newcastle. Besides being a good person, Chris has a great sense of humour. Chris attended one of the best colleges in North America. He used to torment the coach... The coach used to read a lot of books, just like Chris, but Chris would rip out the last pages or last chapter of the book (laughs) and then watch the coach try to figure out the book with no ending. (laughs) Ask Chris if he is allowed back into taxes in Indianapolis yet. (laughs) Please say hi for me. And I bet you know who that was. Oh, that's Cowles. That's got to be Cowles. (laughs) Wayne Cowley. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He's a, that's, that he's a beauty. Funny story. I uh, Yeah, Cows and I played against each other. Cowley and Scott Young, Youngie even more than Cows, but Youngie and I started playing against each other my very first year of hockey. He was in Burlington, Ontario, and I was in Oakville. Oh, yeah. And we played against each other from the time we were Peewees, or Adam. Adam played against each other in Junior B., and then I went to Cornell the year before he went to Colgate. So we played against each other Colgate. And then he signed with LA and he played in New Haven in the American Hockey League. And I played in Moncton. So we'd always bump into each other there. And then lo and behold, Youngie comes over to England. So I played against that guy my entire life.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Cowles. Cowles. Yeah, we played. He was in Georgetown, played junior in Georgetown and, yeah. and, and minor hockey. So we played against each other there. I was in Toronto. Gosh, it was three Christmases ago. Now we went to spend the the Christmas in Toronto. Uh, My dad has a condo downtown and my nephew's there. So we were walking downtown, uh, you know, right on Front Street, just going past Union Station towards the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. And I'm kind of standing there waiting for whoever was family members behind me. And I I had a, a winter toque on and it had Cornell written on it. And I'm standing there kind of looking around and I hear this rapping on the window inside this building and I kind of look up and this guy's looking at me waving and he's pointing at my hat and I'm, you know, saying, yeah, that's yeah, Cornell, Cornell hockey. I think it says something like that. And he's pointing at my hat and, and I'm looking at him. And I said, Oh my God, that's Wayne Cowley. <laughs> and, and, you know, the chances of that happening, I literally stopped right in front of his his bar restaurant. Yeah. The bottom line bar, isn't it? Yeah. Wine bar, sports bar. It's, it's yeah. kind of a sports bar, Ken. Um, and he just happened to be sitting at the the window, elevated window, uh, sitting having a coffee. It's probably about eleven or thirty in the morning. And he'd opened up and and kind of just looked at it at the same time as I was standing there. So we spent a couple hours with my family there, just shooting the, shooting the poop with cows. Yeah, he's a, he's a good lad. We we played a lot of hockey against each other. We really did. And no, I'm not going to talk about the story of the cabin in Indianapolis. That's probably yeah. Uh... <laughs> you must have been reading my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I remember very very well when he referring to the cheeky so-and-so
1: <laughs> and just for the listener i interviewed wayne in series three episode one And as i've just mentioned he's a really nice guy yeah and was a really good goalie too so um mm-hmm. so it's, thanks wayne i know you're going to be listening to this so uh i'll catch you later <laughs> as we say
2: and cows i'll see you this summer at the uh, at the bar i'll pop in and have a beer with you buddy <laughs>
0: Is there a player you would like to hear on the show? Tell Ken now at oldtimehockeyuk.com or Facebook forward slash oldtimehockeyuk.
1: In the summer of 1995, you decided to leave Durham to sign for the former Whitley Warriors, now named Hmm. the Newcastle Warriors. I mean, how did that happen? What's the story there? Yeah. So again, a
2: a regime change in Durham. That was the time that, at the time that uh, Sir John Hall, had purchased the
1: the hockey team that's right yeah it was all going off wasn't it
2: yeah the newcastle united uh, sporting club he had the, the vision of rugby basketball ice hockey and of course the football yeah so he purchased the team and i was finished uh, again done there they uh, I, I forget how it all happened I, I think rick was taking over the team rick Brabant. that's right yeah so i, I wasn't going back to uh to the wasps or whatever they were going to be called at that time and again, wanted to stay in the Northeast, and and that was unfortunate. That that was the time that Mike Rowe got suspended for the year for uh, for something that had happened. Right. Uh, the league came down and said you're you're done for the year. I don't remember the the circumstances, to be honest with you, Ken. I know it was unfortunate for for Mike. At the same time, I'd been told that you know we're no longer part of the plans here. We wanted to stay in the Northeast, so I called one of the other Smith brothers and uh, and said. I understand that Mike won't be playing. If you're looking for a defenseman and import, I'd like to stay in the Northeast. Can we talk? And that's, that's kind of how that happened. And that was also at the time where they were building the new rink in Newcastle. So we were, we started the season playing in Whitley. And if my memory serves me correct, about halfway through the season, we moved into the new Newcastle arena downtown.
1: That's right. In mid November. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So, so yeah. So I played in, I played in Whitley. With another great, great group of guys, you know, Johnny Johnny Iredale was there. Uh, actually, was Johnny? Yeah, Johnny I was there. Terry Ord, Ordy's a great, great guy. Uh, Steve Smith, lots of good, lots of good blokes. Terry Matthews was a quality, quality guy. Uh, I know that midway through the season, there he he was let go. Lobby was there, did long stuff. So good group. We had we had a fun group, but again, the, the team wasn't. It wasn't a great team, to be honest. Yeah, we r- rotated out a couple forward imports and and, and struggled a little bit. But again, another, another year of playing and, and the quality of the guys and the quality of the fans were it was superb. It's playing hockey in the Northeast. What did you think of the new stadium, the uh, Newcastle Arena? You know, I played out of that rink then for the next few years because then went back to Durham and played. Well, what was Durham? It became the Newcastle Cobras. And that's right. And played out of that rink. It was a good rink. I mean, listen, it, it wasn't purpose built for hockey, Ken. It was a facility arena, right? Where you had concerts and you had different, you know, it was basketball. So. The stands weren't that they, – they were kind of flat, the seats, and they went back. So there was no fans on top of you, if you know what I mean. It was yeah. kind of – and if you didn't have, you know, at least a couple thousand in there, it could be a little quiet. Now, the facility itself was good. The ice was great. Dressing rooms were, were solid. And uh, and which was a change, I guess, from some of the other barns that I played in uh, during my career there. But <laughs> sure. it was a good move forward for British ice hockey to start getting those types of rinks. Yeah. You know, that's important.
1: One thing I did notice, when, again, when I was doing my research that your old Durham WOS team actually won all of their games against you. They played six, four league and two playoff, and they, the Wasps won out every time. I don't know if you, if you actually realized that. I could imagine it would have been pretty frustrating for you at the time.
2: I imagine it probably was, it probably <laughs> was Ken. The, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that when you leave a team, oftentimes there are others who have left as well, and yeah. the so the group is it's a different group obviously there's familiar faces but it's actually true when for those of you who are listening when when guys talk about moving teams that the first time in the first few minutes it's it's different you know you're you're getting dressed in a different dressing room you're sitting on a different bench you're yeah. you're you're hitting guys who are your who are your buddies but within the first few shifts that's gone right it's it's your job and it's competition and if you don't compete you're not going to have your job so That stuff, you know, we'll see after the game we'll have a beer, but there's not a whole lot of chit-chat on the ice. And uh, I remember playing when we were with the Whitley squad against Durham and son of a gun, Michael Tasker, he standing in front of the net and I cross-checked him in the back and and I turned to see where the puck was and he kept his glove on, thank God, otherwise he'd taken my head off. Just unloaded an unholy punch on my head and I kind of shook my head and he looked at me and winked and skated off the ice. And I was like, (laughs) you son of a gun. Yeah, so that that kind of st- stuff that kind of stuff uh happens, and but but again, at the end of the game, have a pint with the lads, and and there's that stuff you, you park that stuff.
1: Yeah, somebody told me a long, long time ago that it's only a war when you're on the ice. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. you th- Think about it. You, you listen to all the the podcasts these days, whatever they are, with the heavyweights from the NHL or wherever, even the minors, and. You listen to them talking these things, and they're the nicest, sweetest guys you're ever going to listen to. And they they talk about how much respect they have for the guy that they're knocking their head off, right? And and <laughs> yeah. but because it's a job, they're saying yeah. well, I'm not going to have a job if I don't do this. And yeah. and I have as much respect for the guy across from me that I'm dropping my gloves with that he has for me. But yeah. we know that we have to do this job, and that's
1: that's what you're being paid for. You've got to do. It.
2: That's what you're being paid for. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Okay.
1: So the following season, 1996-97 was the start of the new Super League. Yeah. And again, for the listener, Sir John Hall, as we've already mentioned, owner of the Newcastle United football team, had bought the Durham Wasp the previous season and had also been awarded the Super League's Northeast franchise. Mm-hmm. He also renamed the Wasps the Newcastle Vipers. So the Newcastle Arena's operators then terminated the Warriors contract, allowing the Vipers to take their place. And of course, that forced the Warriors back to Whitley Bay. Yeah. Did you realize all this was going on at the time? I mean, were you back home in Canada when it was all happening? Did you realize what was happening and how it could affect you? Yeah, no, I knew. I, actually, we never went home in the summers. We bought a place in Durham. Oh, right, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, we bought a
2: place in Durham. Uh, right. Geez, I think it was after my third year. We figured, well, we wanted to be in the area. We were teaching. The club pays for your accommodation. Yeah. Um, so I just did a side deal with whoever I was playing for and saying, listen, just give me the, give me what you would pay and I'll use that as for my mortgage. And so we stayed there. So I knew what was going on. Yeah. And, and actually that team, when Sir John bought it, it wasn't the Vipers yet. It was the Newcastle Cobras when I
1: first started playing with them. Sorry. I said, but yes, it was. It was, it was the Cobras. You're right. Yeah. Right. So we,
2: so, uh, that, and, and that was, that team was run, was run by Rick uh brabant that's right he was the coach yeah correct yeah rick and i played together in durham and we were good buddies and he called me and and uh, he said listen uh this is what's going on we're getting this franchise it's going to be in the new rink i want you to come and uh be on my team and i thought well sure enough uh, i'll do that and he said and i'll offer you a two-year contract if you'd like that and i thought perfect you know that's I've had no, no certainty in my career in the UK. And if someone's dangling a guaranteed two year, you know, because there's financial backing now behind this team, sure. then I'll take that contract. And, and, and Rick was again a good buddy of mine. Uh, I trusted him. And so, uh, I went and played with them. And then, geez, I'm sure I'm segueing into your next question. He then appointed me a player assistant coach. I was working with him then the next summer to build the team. Uh, he and I put, right. a, put, a, put that team together and, uh, and traveled around. So that was a good experience, yeah. Good, good two years, my last two years in, uh, in Newcastle with the Cobras.
1: So from an organizational point of view, how much difference was there between the Newcastle Warriors and the Newcastle Cobras?
2: Organizationally, huge. Uh,
1: <laughs> it was, <imagine>. there was, <laughs> there was a huge difference.
2: But again, to be fair... That was the genesis of the Super League, right? Yeah. And, and the, the game had gone from three imports and local lads to basically a bunch of guys like me who didn't need a visa in their passport. They were European Union players. And, yeah. and that was at the expense of, of a lot of the British lads that couldn't play on their local team because it became a very much professional league. And as such, there were much higher expectations of the players and their families that were coming in. I can promise you that Guys wouldn't have been able to put up with some of the early stuff that I know, even before me, Mike O'Connor did or or Rick did before when when they got to the UK.
1: I can well imagine. Sure, yeah, yeah,
2: it's shocking, quite frankly, from what you're used to in North America, being a professional, to hear. And again, that's with all due respect to the folks that had the passion and the and the belief to have hockey in the UK. But when the Super League started, it really it it was a professional league and. Guys weren't working full time like they were in the past, like the Michael Taskers and and those guys who didn't didn't go to jobs during the day and then practice at night. Sure, yeah. Everybody on those teams that was that was your job. So it was run much more professionally, and that's that's again no disrespect to the to the Whitley folks. They weren't in that league, right? It was a totally different league in terms of how it was organized and how it was structured and the financial backing behind it.
1: Sure, yeah, I can understand that. Okay, let's take a break from your timeline and go into some general questions. Last night, I sent my mailing list an email asking if they'd like to submit questions to you. Mm -hmm. It was a bit short notice. However, mailing list subscriber and Patreon patron, Andrew Williamson, replied with these questions. 1. What was your first impressions of Billingham?
2: Of the, of the city, the, the team, the, I think he means both. Right. I have nothing but good things to say about the Northeast. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see a ton of Billingham when I first got there. Yeah. You know, I was at the rink, and then I was staying over at the LaPlante's place, but the people there were, were fantastic. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a working, hardworking city. You could see that the folks uh, enjoyed a certain style of hockey and I was very comfortable there as I was in the Northeast. You know, I felt that the Northeast was kind of my kind of place and, and Billingham uh teeside uh, in fact my sister lives in the northeast still she's all right yeah just outside of middlesbrough in a, in a beautiful little village called great Ayton. and so you know we're northeast folk and i thought billingham was a wonderful spot we enjoyed it
1: right yeah okay question two were you ever tempted to play elsewhere after landing in the northeast after air
2: i was tempted a couple of times i had, I had some offers you know further down south but we had started establishing ourselves in the northeast. Sure. My wife was working and she had been working before we we moved to England and and that was something that was very important as I mentioned she had at that point she she'd already had a had a master's degree and and yeah. wanted to teach and so we were ingrained in the college system in Durham and we're we're very happy. Durham's a beautiful beautiful town. We got to know a lot of people there. So we were happy there and it's not always about the money, right? It's yeah. about it's, it's work-life balance, and, and we were getting that, and we were quite, quite happy where we were,
1: so there was, there was really no desire to move on. Sure, Yep. Yeah. Okay, so Andrew's third and final question was slightly different in actual fact this one. Who was the daftest player you played with for pranks or just plain old dippy, as he calls it? Oh geez, there are some beauties. Uh, there are some beauties that I played
2: with. You got to you, you got to talk about Todd Bidner, right? Yeah, uh, you know, Bidzy's a guy who, if you know, if he can't bring a smile to your face, then you're you might be six feet under. That guy was just <laughs> he, he'd he'd been around the block enough times, and and he was he was always a great laugh. You know, he was he was he was tons of fun. Uh, Johnny Iredale's a great crack. You know, you could talk to him all day long, and he can make yep. you laugh. I, I always enjoyed being around him. But those local guys in Durham, you know, you're, you're, you're Michael Tasker, um, you're John Hutley. He, that John Hutley is a beauty of a guy. Funny, always up to, 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 to different things. Those two guys together were, were great. You know, Wilkinson was a, was a great guy. They were they're, they're all good lads, you know. No one was ultra, you know, cuckoo. Um, but but <laughs> you you could literally sit in the dressing room after a game with, with the Jordy boys and uh, and have a great laugh and, and talk uh, talk over. So Bizzy was hilarious. Johnny Iredell was a great guy. Always had fun with Mickey Tacker, as we used to call him, and, and Hutz. Um, yeah. You know, really, really good guys.
1: Enjoyed them. Right. Okay. So thanks for the questions, Andrew. I'm and moving on to some of my questions. All players have a favorite funny hockey story to tell. What's yours?
2: Well, I told you the one about Johnny Iredell's mother kicking me in the head <laughs> yeah. when, uh, when, uh, when we pulled over. There was one night we were coming back from Cardiff uh, when I was playing for Durham, and I think rarely did we ever win down there. I think we won. And so we, were, we went after the game across the street. There's a great pub where you could get a pint, the best pint of brains. Um, uh-huh. So we'd, we went in there and had a, had a few beers, <clears throat> a few. And there was a lot more <laughs> beers on the bus. And I remember things were getting rowdy on the bus. And we were, it was a beautiful, beautiful coach. Uh, we were riding back. And I, I was down, I think I was down the bottom deck talking to somebody. And you, you heard this noise. And I forget who came down to me. They said, hey, Norty, we got a problem up there. So I go up, and as I'm going up, it's getting chillier and chillier. And I get up to the top and look at the back of the bus, and the whole back window had been blown out. It was gone. It was gone. And I looked at the end of the bus, and these guys were all sitting there red-faced and kind of giggling and sweating profusely. And I guess what had happened is that Pally and and Michael Tasker, Tacky, were – we're wrestling, and, you know, Pally's a big lad, and I think he kind of pushed Tasker in a different direction, and his elbow or shoulder hit the back window in, of the bus and totally blew it out. The window's <laughs> gone. It's They hit the sweet spot, and it's gone. And I was just looking like, oh, my Lord, what the heck's going on here? So I go back down to the bus driver, and I'm like, hey, and he, I forget his name. He's a great guy. He always drove for us. Um, yeah. But I said, bad news, man. That uh, The back window of the bus just got blown out. And he's looking at me like, "Oh my God!" Well, <laughs> I'm not calling the owner because this coach is due to go to Spain in the morning. Oh, ouch! With a group of tourists, yeah, of locals, <laughs> yes. So he looks at me, and I look at, and a pal is beside me with Tasker, and I'm like, and they're like, they're they're they've had a few pints. So the, the bus driver phones the owner. And this it's got to be two in the morning by then. Yeah. And this guy picks up the phone, and, and I say to him, "Hey, this is so and so. I'm I'm on the bus, and unfortunately, there's been a there's been a bit of an accident. Um, you know, we hit we hit some bumpy ground, and one of the guys kind of fell back, and his elbow hit the hit the the back of the the window, and it blew it out. Oh, Ken, he went up and down me side. That coach is supposed to go out to Spain in the morning, and I what am I gonna do? And I'm just looking, I'm looking at this guy. I, said, I don't know what's going on, but." yeah that was pretty crazy so we drove the rest of the way home from durham uh from cardiff sorry with no back window and i know that when we got back to the uh to the rink uh, guys moved pretty quickly to get their gear in the dressing room and get the heck out of there because i know oh, I that bet. the owner was was on his way but that was uh, that was that was quite a uh quite an interesting ride home and and the boys I
1: probably who i've just mentioned will remember it very well <laughs> i can imagine they will definitely okay next question then and uh, who was the best player you ever played with or played against in the UK? Sorry, yes.
2: Yeah, there are guys. I, if I could talk about, let's say, two, two or three guys. Sure. Yeah. I think one of the best players that I've ever played with and against was was Rick Brabant. That guy was was just a fantastic hockey player, skill wise. But oh, absolutely, yeah. But also just his his sheer determination and passion to win. I've never actually played in any many leagues with anybody who wanted to win more than that guy and, and would do what it took to win. And that's, that's a skill and a trait that you can't teach. That's yeah. something that you either got or you don't got. Um, now you marry that with his fantastic skill. And, and uh, there's a reason that guy has scored as many goals and many points and championships and whatnot that he had. He was, he was superb. And I also have a huge amount of respect for Tony hand uh, yeah. just in terms of the quality of him uh, for a guy who, never really played outside of of the UK. I know we went no, over to right. uh, went to Edmonton for camp there for coffee and a donut um, <laughs> but all of all of his all of his training is was in the UK and yeah. just for him to because you know what they say you, you basically play to your competition your level of competition, and you learn. Yeah. Yeah. The level of the competition. I'm not saying that the competition he was around wasn't great, but it certainly wasn't North America. And just the sheer ability that that guy had. Yeah. And again, his passion for the game was fantastic. So in the UK, those, those two guys were, were extremely special players. Um, I was very much impressed with, uh, with both of them. And those, those are guys that I can, I can put my finger on and say that, uh, they were fantastic hockey players.
1: Okay. Next question. What was your worst hockey moment? My worst hockey moment in, again, in general, like in my career. Yeah. Whatever, whatever fits.
2: We were playing in, we were playing the Boston Bruins farm team in, in Maine and we were, we were on the road and we've been on the road for, for a while. And in the American hockey league, when you're on the road, you're riding the iron lung, you're riding the bus. Right. And it's, and, and there's some, there's some long trips. Anyway, we were in Maine and it was, I think the, third game and four nights type thing and I was had the puck behind the net and I was wheeling behind the net to break up ice. And that was I think it was my first year of pro and I had a which I don't didn't any longer after that had a nasty habit of when I had the puck to kind of have my tongue hanging out of my mouth when All I was right. stick handling. Well this guy behind me was chasing me kind of was trying to hook me and his stick rode up and my tongue was hanging out and he, Ooh. and he caught, he caught my tongue. Ooh. And you know, when you get hurt in games and you take pucks in the face stuff, your adrenaline is such that you don't necessarily feel yeah, really sure. what's going on or feel the pain. Um, so I skated over cause I knew something was going, I felt blood and I was kind of looking down there's a bunch of blood in mine. I was like, Oh, what the heck's going on here? And so I skated over to the bench and most hockey players who get caught, you know, the guys in the bench look at you and like, Oh, that's not a bad one. You know, guys are bad. That's going to be six, seven, eight, nine stitches. Well, when I skated over to our bench, I was kind of with my tongue hanging out, and the the look in the guy's eyes when they saw me—like, oh Jesus, what is that? (laughs) I knew knew that there was—I knew that there was something wrong. So (laughs) anyway, the trainer took me immediately over, and there was the the, the doctors in the rink, and I took sixty-seven stitches in my tongue to sew it back together. Wow! And. So I'm lying in the dressing room. The period is five minutes from ending. I'm lying in the dressing room. The guy's stitching me up. It's just a mess. My tongue is already starting to swell up like a sausage. Yeah. So I can't really talk and it's numb. And, and anyway, the coach comes in and looks at me and he's, and unfortunately, you know, he knew what he had to say. He's like, Nardi, we're have we down two defensemen. If you can't play, we only have three for the rest of the night. So, wow, yeah. you know, the message is get your gear on and get let's down. go. You know, oh, it's a long way, long way from the heart. So yeah, I finished that game, uh, I guess it was the last period with these 67 stitches, my tongue slowly swelling up in my mouth thinking, oh. why, why, why? And then –
1: How could you breathe?
2: As the coach says, you got a, you got a nose, don't you? Nostrils, breathe through. <laughs> but, yeah, that was that – was that was was <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was pretty ugly the next – but here's the thing with the tongue because there's so much blood in your tongue, so much blood flow, that thing healed. Within a week, the stitches are dissolving.
1: Really? Wow.
2: You know, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I still have got a, a couple bumps on the underside of my tongue, yeah. but that was, I mean, and, and you know, the, the, the disappointingly really for me, the most, the most disappointing thing was when I, when I did break my leg before my first training camp in Winnipeg, or really, that, sure. that, that, that was kind of a, almost like an omen. It's like, oh no. And then when I separated my shoulder, when I just got traded to Chicago and, and actually I just won the fittest player award at the at the training camp um, oh, yeah. and was really like in a in a good spot and, and did so that that was really disappointing, but that tongue thing was, was pretty darn ugly.
1: So you basically you got out of that habit pretty quickly after that then of, of skating with your tongue out.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a difference between Michael Jordan doing it um and, and a hockey and a hockey player doing it. Oh, but yeah, I still I wouldn't uh, yeah, I quickly changed the way that I carried my tongue. Sure. <laughs>
0: Want more Old Time Hockey? Connect with Ken now on Twitter at OldTimeHockeyUK or on Facebook forward slash OldTimeHockeyUK and visit
1: OldTimeHockeyUK.com. Okay, so how did you prepare before a game? I mean, did you have any superstitions or rituals?
2: Oh yeah. I was pretty, I was pretty superstitious just in terms of, uh, you know, what time I had my pregame meal, how long I'd have my pregame nap, uh, what time I'd get to the rink. Uh, and then my routine when I got to the rink. Uh, so if you have two hours before the game, I need to have my tick I stick tape by this particular time. You know, you can have your last coffee by this time. And then, and then going on the ice, remember, uh, uh, Ross Lambert and I, and and there's a lot of teams have this. Most of you guys will be able to tell you this. There's a, there's superstition in terms of who goes on the ice first and and, you know, the goalie first. And, and Roscoe and I had a, had kind of a similar routine where I'd always kind of gone on first after the goalie. But as, uh, as Ross, if he's listening was by far my senior in terms of age and experience, he got he's like, Nardi, I'm going on first, but you're coming behind me. But then we had this kind of tip tap, you know, glove thing. So there was routines in that regard. I think a lot of guys have those types of things, which skate you put on first and, uh, and it's funny because it's in your mind when you're doing it. If something happens when you're doing it, you kind of think, uh-oh, what does this mean? You know, what's going <laughs> to happen tonight? So, yeah. But, yeah, I, you know, I think more routine things can than uh, timing and, and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Right, let's return to your timeline with the Newcastle Cobras then. And as you've already mentioned, um, your former teammate, Rick Brabant, had become the uh, the Cobra's new player coach. I mean, mm-hmm. was he as good a coach as he was a player? Well,
2: if he was as good a coach as was a player, he would be coaching the NHL. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, was,
1: I, yeah, I could yeah. predict what he was going to say then. <laughs> you,
2: you know, here's the situation and I know that I I I'd, I'd spoken with Rick about this after the fact because for you know, he left he, he left the team mid-season um, which was unfortunate. The the challenge from going immediately from directly from being a player to being a coach is that it's incredibly hard for that individual to cut the cord that you're no longer a player right and yeah. you and you can't fraternize you can't um, you know do the stuff that you could do with the boys when you're a player as then yeah. when you're the coach right yeah. now Rick was fantastically well organized he had I think when the guys came into town for the first year he, you know he had the someone from the bank was there opening up accounts for them they all had their cars they all had their homes that side of things he was he was you know, meticulous in his planning. Right. And in, in terms of his coaching the same way. I mean, gosh golly, he'd have these two hours the night before he'd have his practice plan set out and you know, know what he wanted to do during practice. But it, it's just hard he he'd gone he had just finished playing and he said to himself, Okay, I'm gonna retire as a player and then become the coach I only knew him as a player as well so i wanted to go and have sure. beers and things like that but it's and it's difficult to to cut that cord and i think that for some guys they they can take advantage of a coach if they get if the coach gets too close right and sure and at the same time rick also knew as we started the season and you know we weren't a great team by any means but mm-hmm. he also knew that he was probably still the best player on the team <laughs>
1: and right, yeah,
2: and that's hard as well. So he did come back and play, and and then you become a player coach again in the Super League. It was becoming a very very good league yep. where tactics did matter. It wasn't just who had the best imports and who had the best Brits, right? Sure, uh, tactics really did matter, and I think that that was that was a challenge. Coaching is not easy. It really isn't easy, and just because somebody was a superb player, it doesn't translate immediately or ever in some cases. Wayne Gretzky coached and. You know, you can read some of the guys said about him, you know, just wasn't a great coach, wasn't a great coach. So
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. He was a player coach. So that must've been twice as difficult.
2: Yeah. So what he did, uh, was that first year, he, this is before I, I did the second season with him where, where I was, where his player assistant coach and, and yeah. worked together with him to put a team together. That first year with the Cobras, I guess got influenced pretty heavily by a Scandinavian agent and decided that, uh, the guys he was going to bring in were all Swedes and Finns. Right. Great, great yeah. group of guys. Lovely guys. And at the same time, he brought in a coach or an assistant coach as well. A guy who, uh, who wasn't going to play. And so Rick was the coach, but playing and this guy stood behind the bench and kind of did what Rick wanted him to do, uh, and, and coach. So while he was a player coach, there was someone behind the bench who was not in, uh, not in gear. Uh, to coach uh, but but it's still very difficult because again the league at that point was getting better and better and better some great hockey players who come over it was basically all an import league and to try to compete as a player and at the same time when after your shift sit there be able to look at what's going on in the game and say listen we need to change our d zone or we need to go in our four check with, with two guys and not one that's very very difficult to to do at that level it was easier in the pre, in the earlier years, oh, sure. where yeah. it was it was less of a
1: of a pro league. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you spent the next two seasons with the Cobras. First season, the team finished fifth, a respectable fifth from eight. And then the second season, the team finished a disappointing eighth from eight, i.e., mm-hmm. bottom of the league. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are your memories of certainly that second season? Because it all seemed to go wrong. I nearly said tits. Yeah. Up, but it all went wrong.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it went. My last, listen, those two years in Newcastle were a a scream. They were hilarious. It Uh was, and I'm not talking about the the on ice product at at some point was pretty hilarious as well. But the guys were, uh, (laughs) the the crew that that I hung out with, Kelly Askew, beauty of a guy, Justin Duberman. Actually, when you, the previous question you asked me about, who's one of the the loopiest guys you ever played with? Justin Duberman. Dubes is absolutely at the top of that list. He was, Uh oh, what a, what a beauty that guy was! Total, total rock star. He's a player agent now, actually, for in the NHL. Yep. He represents players.
1: So, uh, oh, sorry, what what sort of things did he get up to then?
2: Doobie, he was just he was. Oh, I, again, a couple of them I can't mention. Uh, they they involved. <laughs> yeah, they involved um, the local uh, constabulary, <laughs> and so we'll we'll, we'll, we'll park that. You're uh, right, yep. But he just 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 one of the funniest, most like in a room when Doobs was in the room he was a guy. I mean, that's just the way it was. He was hilarious, but he also made everyone else feel like part of the group. Right. And he was really great, really good team guy. And I think that again, part of the challenge that we faced in those two years is that we didn't have like a blazer as a coach or a dampier as a coach that, you know, if you came to practice and there was a little bit of, of the boys had been out a little bit late the night before, yeah. there wasn't a whole lot of uh, consequences, right? And I think that got you. Uh, with, the, with the quality of the, of the play in that league, I think it got a little bit away at times. Uh, yeah, you had to have of that of, discipline. Of, yeah, yeah, a little bit. But uh, great guys. I mean, literally great guys. And, but we the team wasn't put together. I didn't, I didn't know enough about building a hockey team. Rick and I were that, that summer before my, the, the last year you know, we were looking at looking at, you know, the resumes of hundreds of players and trying to figure out who we should sign and agents calling and things like that. And I, you know, it's one of those things where you then you, what you fall back on is, oh, I know this guy, let's get him. So, you know, Cali, for example, Cali finished a year previous year playing in in Germany. He was available. I'm like, let's sign cows. Not saying it wasn't a good decision, but it's, it's just that network of then making phone calls to check on this guy. What's what's the story on this guy? So I think there was some, I don't know if the team was built as a team should be, but the quality of the guys in terms of people, man, they're just, just a great group of people.
1: Do you think that um, you had a smaller budget than the likes of Nottingham, Sheffield, and Manchester and those teams?
2: You know, Ken, I, I've never actually, you brought that up, I've never thought it had anything to do with budgetary reasons. I think that there were just some decisions made in terms of who do you want, you know, who's, who's going to be your goal scorer? Who's going to be the plugger on the first line? Who's going to be... You know it's kind of the muscle in the corner who's your plumber that's going to get the puck out of the corner yep. um, defenseman who's going to be your power play guy and I think I don't think that that we built those teams intelligently enough I don't right. I think it was yep. just kind of you know picking up guys so I can't put I, I, I don't think in any way shape or form it was it was money. I know yep. some guys made some pretty good money who we uh, brought in right and uh it's just it just it seemed like it just kind of yeah it went south <laughs>
1: Well, I guess you guys were rookie coaches, so uh, you know you do it your way, and sometimes that's not the right way. Yeah,
2: and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and and here's the thing: I honestly, I would like to be, you know, in hindsight, if I were looking at perhaps a different career, the management side, not coaching side, the management side of hockey. Right. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in doing because I learned a lot. At that particular point, I never, ever was interested in coaching. Honestly, Ken, I never had any interest in coaching. I, uh, yeah. You know, people ask, when, when I left the UK and went to Switzerland to, uh, to work, I'd spent my first year, my wife and I spent our first year there. We were teaching at a, at a university in this small Swiss town. And, you know, hockey is a small world. I get this phone call from this Swiss German guy. And he goes, hey, uh, I coached the team uh, that's one town over in the National League B. I hear you work here. You want to come and coach with me? And I thought, oh, Jesus, leave me alone. You know, I'm just <laughs> right. trying to get on with my life. I want to. So I, yeah. I went down and visited with the guy. Great guy. He was the local chief of police down in uh, oh, yeah. in Visp. And in fact, where we brought in Richard LaPlante to play, funnily enough, who did a great job there. But I went down, I coached for a year. I coached the defense and it was fun. It was It was good. But you know, in my mind, I'm like, no, I'm not into it enough. I'm not into putting the work in enough. Sure. It's just, it, it didn't entice me. You know, I wanted to do something different.
1: Okay, so what are your most memorable highlights of your time with the Cobras? Oh,
2: Jeepers. Sadly, I wish I could point at some trophies, Ken, and say, uh.
1: <laughs> not to be, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, yeah, not to, not to be at all. I think, you know, the friendship that I made with guys like, uh, Duberman and, and Kelly, yeah. um, you know, Ross and his brother Dale. Dale Lambert's just a, a great human being as well. I really, really have a lot of respect for him and, and enjoy uh, enjoyed his company. He was he was he's a good man. Randy Smith, another great guy. We had some beauties on that team. Cowley. I think you know my my greatest memories of of Newcastle were were the guys that I was with. Really enjoyed their company. Even though the nice thing is, quite honestly, is that we weren't doing well, but the team still kind of stayed together. You know what I mean? They were yep. they were a good group. Unfortunately. I guess there were some guys on the team who uh, weren't thrilled with, with Rick's coaching or how things were going there. And, and that, that got messy in terms of, uh you know, one of my lowest points was actually being the one to say to Rick that the, the, the guys have had a players-only meeting. And they would like you to stand down as coach. That was extremely really? difficult. Really? I, I uh, didn't
1: know that had happened. I just assumed yeah. that uh, Rick decided he'd had enough and and to move no. on, I didn't realize there was more, a lot more to it than that.
2: No, Rick Brabant doesn't quit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right, yeah, He's, I should have known no, that. No. Yeah, 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 no, he doesn't walk away from anything. You need to drag him out. And unfortunately, uh, there was that, that meeting, which... I wasn't a part of it because I was the assistant coach, but they right, informed yeah. me and I said, I'm the one who's telling them you get no one else's because I was very, very close with Rick. Yeah. And, uh, while we might not have built a, a fantastic team, uh, we, we spent a lot of time trying to, and, uh, yeah, it was very, very sad. Um, you know, I remember sitting in the rink, uh, in, in the stands and I told him that and he, uh, and he looked at me and he said, okay, thanks for letting me know, man. Um, and he went in and, and, uh, I, I think he might have played another game or two, which uh-huh. again must have been hugely difficult for him. Wow, yeah. And then basically said, I'm, I'm out of here. And he went down to Manchester uh, because it, it, you, you can't, you know, you can't stick around. When something like that, the guys in the rooms basically are saying, hey, we're thinking we need to change. Yeah. Uh, and then for, for him, and as proud of man as he is and a uh, competitor that is, he, he, he moved away. So that, that was very
1: difficult. It's like them saying, you're not wanted, isn't 100%. it? 100%. Yeah, no, no, spot on. What do you do in that situation? You've got to go. Yeah, spot on. And
2: he went down, and, and he had greener pastures. You know, the guy Rick's a heck of a player, and he he kept playing. You know, Manchester and and you know different he spots. Went to London, and didn't uh, he? went to London. Yeah, the son of a gun uh, kept going and going. So <laughs> that was so. I think you know those those two years, there the there was some real fun times in terms of the guys you were with in dressing room. It wasn't necessarily as much about winning. Yeah, unfortunately. And then the low point was really that whole thing with Rick, and uh, sadly
1: when uh, you know when he left. Sure. Yeah. Okay, let's move on again. And I've just got a few more questions to ask. But before we finish, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that I haven't covered?
2: I just think that, you know, one of the things that sticks out in my mind uh, that I guess is, is it hurts is just the way that Durham lost their hockey team and then eventually yeah. their ice rink. That was a huge – Durham Ice Rink and the Durham Wasps were a huge part of Durham, of the social fabric of Durham, of
1: – Yeah, the community.
2: – of families. And you could feel that and see that in every game you played in, that, in the Riverside Rink. You could. And it was so, so sad yeah. when you know, the Smiths were on their way out and, and then Rex came in and purchased the team, and then you've got the Newcastle, you know, Sir John's looking at it. And it really it, it tore it tore a huge huge piece of the community apart when the Wasps left town. Even they tried to bring in another team when the the wasps had left and gone to play in in but that's uh,
1: right the Durham City Wasps.
2: Yeah, Durham City Wasps. And and I you know I I was I was hanging around then and I was living in Durham and I went to the rink and and participated in a couple of discussions and you could just you could see the sadness and to this day I know that. I see emails and I see the Durham Wasps, you know, Facebook page and folks still desperately miss uh, hockey there. And, you know, that's something And I just, I, I want them to know those, those folks from Durham that, that listen to your show, just how, how proud I was to play in that city and, and how disappointed I was for them. Cause obviously I, not obviously there's guys who stay. I was, I was going to leave Durham. So I wasn't, it wasn't part of me as a child growing up, but I I do know how sad they were. And, and uh, yeah, and that, that was very sad for me when, when that whole thing ended.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, It certainly devastated the hockey community there. And it's been going on ever since then, the, the, yeah. thought that maybe there'll be a rink one day, but the, the council, city council, just won't have it for whatever reason. And it is a shame because that was a hotbed of hockey. And oh, yeah. you know, if they do ever put a rink there, then... I mean, and it's not just the, the hockey, is it? It's the social side no. of, of just Correct. basically ice skating and meeting people.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I look at it like it was, for Durham, for all those years, it was the the in england you have you have your local right everyone has their own local depending yeah. on where you live your pub and yeah but the durham ice rink was the city's local you know what i mean yeah, absolutely. it was it, it, it the name durham Wasps was known throughout the country in ice yeah. hockey circles and I'm the fans sure. were extremely <laughs> extre- yeah extremely proud of the uh, of the team and yeah. and that was where people went to meet i read still to the state post you know i remember guys you know on friday and saturday nights or saturday and sunday nights being a durham ice rink and then you know it was, it was a huge part of the, huge part of the city and, and literally for it to be gone that quickly. And, and I remember going into, that, the, into the rink when it was a bowling alley yeah. and getting through the front door and, and going to, with a couple people people, going to get our, our bowling shoes. And I kind of looked in there and I said, I can't do it. Sorry. I just, I literally, I can't go in there and bowl knowing that this is where the visiting team's bench was. This is where the goal yeah. was. No, it, it was too sad. It was too sad. So uh, wow. it was pity.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, moving on a, again then, and uh, do you miss not playing the game? No,
2: not a bit, Ken, <laughs> not a bit. I Listen, I don't even own a pair of skates. Oh, right. Yeah, so when we moved to Switzerland, as I say, I retired and I was teaching, and uh, that first year that we were there, was contacted by that, the, the team down the road. Very good league, National League B, yep. uh, so it's one level below the, the top. And got involved with that and and just that was I, I'd had enough I really I yeah, had, had you know I played you know from two years of junior to four years of college to 10 years professionally I was good I'd, I'd done my bit and got what I needed and what I wanted to contribute to the game your body doesn't last forever either I think no, it was, absolutely when I was 42 I had my first hip replacement and at right, 46 wow. had my second hip replacement nice. and I you know, three years ago, I had my shoulder rebuilt, uh, December 2nd of this past year I had back surgery. So your body takes a beating. Um, I get my excitement from sport in, in golfing and in, in working out every day. Oh. I, that's what I love to do. I live in Tampa, Florida now. So the weather here is very conducive to year round outdoor sports. So um, I so watch lucky. the game. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. It, it is. It, it's a great city. And, and I watch hockey on the tube as I, said our the company I work with uh, has season tickets for the Lightning and oh, yeah. I I probably watched, you know, 41 home games a year for the Lightning since I've been here. I wow. probably was at 30 35 of those games a year. So wow. through through company tickets. So yeah, um, I don't miss playing. No, I love watching it and I think that uh, as I say I did my bit and you know passed the torch to the next group. You guys can think about your own surgeries in 20 years. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll tell you now, I'm I'm 64, I've just turned 64, and um, I'm thinking that maybe I should need a hip replacement within the next five years or so. It's not painful, painful, but it's there every time I twist in certain ways and means. I mean, I I could be totally wrong, but... no.
2: let me just say this to anybody out there. If you're feeling pain in your hips and the doctor said, yep, your cartilage in your socket is starting to wear away, do not hesitate getting it replaced. It is easy-peasy you will feel like a million bucks. And I would rather do it at a younger age yeah. where it's easier to do the rehab, which isn't that hard. So, Ken, this is Dr. Norton speaking to you. <laughs> if, you're, if you're feeling any pain, man, go and do it. Get it done. You know, if you, need it, if you need an oil change,
1: man, change the oil. Don't wait. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Yes, right. I shall certainly bear that in mind. <laughs> Before we conclude the interview, what are you doing these days, Chris?
2: So these days, I'm in I'm in Tampa, living in Tampa, Florida with my wife, and I'm vice president of consulting services for a company oh. called Revenue Management Solutions. And we are basically an econometric company that does pricing for uh, restaurants, whether they're oh. quick service or fine dining restaurants. And we use a, basically a, a data-driven uh, regression models that we build in order to determine the optimal price at the optimal time for restaurants. So I've been in Tampa now for nine years. We moved from Switzerland, where I was there for 14 years, uh, working at a university in Lausanne. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, director of external relations for the university and then moved here nine years. It'd be, Jesus, almost nine years ago now. And, uh, wow. and my wife is the director of, uh, of employee relations and behavioral uh, research for, for the same company. So we're, uh, we're happy in Tampa. Our daughter, uh, who was born in Switzerland. And when we moved her here, I think it took her about a year to speak to us again. But you know what happens <laughs> when we, we moved here. She did her, her name's Caroline. She did her high school in Tampa and yep. was a uh, road. She was a crew member, a stroke seat for the uh, for the varsity crew team oh, yeah. and is now going to university in Edinburgh. She's at University of Edinburgh. Wow. When she finished her high school, she kind of looked at us and said, mom, dad, I was born in Europe. I was raised over there. I'm going back. <laughs> I said, listen, you get yourself to Edinburgh. I can always look up Kenny McKee. We can have a scotch and play some golf. So let's, let's agree on that. So yeah, she's in, uh, she's in, in Edinburgh just about to finish her, uh, her fourth year. Uh, She's studying international law and international relations, and we'll see what the next step is for her. So yeah, very happy here. Really, really enjoying life. And, uh, I like my work, like the team I have at work and, uh. You know, 56 years old, man, that happened last week. It's like, what happened?
1: 56? Come on. <laughs> Where's the time gone? Yeah, no kidding. But uh, yeah, all is good, bud. All is really good. Great stuff. Okay, Chris, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And thank you so much for coming on the Old Time Hockey UK podcast.
2: Thank you, Kenneth. Thanks for doing this. I think you got a, you got a great thing going here. And uh, I, uh, as I say, appreciate the folks uh who support ice hockey in the UK and those who, who said nice things to me and those who say nasty things to me in the visiting rinks, but uh, well, well done. Keep going. And, and, uh, and, and cheers for this.
1: Well, thanks again. And I'll catch you later. Thanks, sir. Memories,
0: insights, and anecdotes of hockey heroes, the old time hockey UK podcast.
1: I really appreciate you coming onto the show, Chris. And yes, next time I'm in the States, I'll definitely look you up. Hey, don't forget to check out our new shopping section. Remember, you can find it at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com forward slash for new, S for shop. I can guarantee you'll find plenty of hockey goodies there. So go check it out now. www.oldtimehockeyuk.com forward slash n s. New shop. It's shout-out time. Today's shout-out goes to Chris Badger-Randall. Chris has written a new book, White Link Raiders are Simply the Best, and is the story of the Isle of Wight's now sadly departed senior hockey team. The book looks back at all 25 seasons and contains interviews with former players, volunteers and team owners. It's a must for any island supporter or hockey fan in general. My copy is already on order. And you can order yours by emailing Chris at chrisbadgerandall at icloud.com. That's chrisbadgerandall at icloud.com. I'll also add this link to the show notes on the oldtimehockeyuk.com website. There are currently 72 Old Time Hockey UK podcast episodes available for you to enjoy. And you can find them on Pocket Casts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you prefer. Can you help support the show by becoming a patron? For as little as £2 per episode, you can really help keep the show alive. You'll find details at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll also find a page link in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Simply search for Old Time Hockey UK. As ever, a massive thanks go to my Patreon patrons to Paul Blackburn, Tommy Boll, Oscar Brownsword, Rob Clayton, Colin Dunn, Susie Hatch, Sean Holland, John Hume Spry, Jim Murden, Jeff Povey, Chris Saddington, and Andrew Williamson. You really do help keep this show alive. Thanks, guys. It's so much appreciated. I'm continuing to arrange interviews with more legends of the game. If you want the inside track on who's next up on the show, then join our mailing list. The sign-up box is on our website. You can't miss it. A big thank you once again to Chris Norton for coming onto the show. If you'd like to hear from your hockey hero from the past, email me at othpuk at gmail.com. That's othpuk at gmail.com, and I'll see what I can do. And finally, to you, the listener, wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for listening. Until the next time, I'm Ken Abbott, and I'll catch you later.
0: Thank you for tuning into the Old Time Hockey UK podcast you enjoyed the show, we would be thrilled if you could head over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. If you would like to receive updates on future episodes, please join our mailing list at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com. Old Time Hockey UK. The puck drops now.